Um, just before we uh, go into the message for this morning, um, we're a church that knows and believes that God speaks to his people, and especially when we gather, sometimes God gives words of encouragement or exhortation, and you heard Adam talking about that. And I think the Lord may have given me one of those for someone here, so um, I'm I apologize if I end up embarrassing you. That's not my desire, but we'll test together to see if this is from the Lord. It's for you right here in the orange, the, the one that's saying what? Do you mind standing up? I won't embarrass you or anything. And could you tell me what your first name is? Evan, okay. Evan, I, I don't know that we've met before. Um, I was standing over there, and during worship, I looked over and I saw you, and a phrase came to my mind, which... Um, the phrase was this, um, as one plucked from the fire. And um, that seems like an odd uh, phrase to come to me, but it, I remembered that um, John Wesley, um, the famous Methodist, um, was in a fire at some point, and early in his life he was saved from a fire, and he, and he thought about himself as one plucked from the fire. And I felt like as I looked at you, Evan, that what the Lord was saying is, God has saved you from fire for the purpose of fire. In other words, he's done something in your life or is doing something in your life right now, and he wants to set you on fire in a good way, pulling you from something that might destroy and sending you to something that would bring healing. Does that make sense when I say that? Yeah. Um, does anything in your life resonate with that as something that God might want to say to you? Or Okay. Would you mind if I prayed for you? Okay. God, we thank you for Evan. We thank you for your love for him and the way you have called him, that you know him from the foundations of the earth till now and every day of his life coming. And I thank you, God, for your saving work in his life, past, present, and future, and ask that you set him on fire with the love of Jesus. Amen. Okay, thank you. Um. As we experience things like that and people give you words or you have words, Evan, I just want to tell you, you can come up to me afterwards and say, that was ridiculous, that didn't mean anything to me. Um, the scripture says, don't despise the prophetic word. It also says, test every word and hold fast to that which is good. So when we get words of encouragement like that, we don't want to despise it, we want to put it out there, but we see in part and we prophesy in part. We don't always get it all right, so... Um, that's meant for encouragement to build you up, not to put a burden on you or something like that. So, okay. All right. Dispensed with the awkward part of the service. <laughs> um, we're in this series called The Songs of Ascents, and um, I'll just start with a confession this morning. As I was preparing for this message this morning from Psalm 132, a couple of times I thought to myself, why don't we just skip this one? Um, it's long. It's kind of involved. There are words and places and phrases and concepts that require a lot of explanation. And I just honestly was thinking, you know, next week I get to speak Psalm 133, the blessedness of unity. Why don't we just skip and go right to that? And then I realized as I was studying and praying and whining that um, this is a psalm about Israel's history with the presence of God. This is a, a psalm that roots Israel in history. And we're all rooted in history, right? We're, we're, we're all, we have a history that we've come from. We, we learn from it. Sometimes we learn from it so that we can not do it again. And sometimes we learn from it so we can do it again because God shows us things in the midst of our history. 
So this is a history of God's presence in the midst of his people. And remember, they're reminding themselves of this history on the way to worship. And so I thought it might be important for us to stick with it, to go through it, um, see this history that motivates Israel's obedience and their worship, their surrender, and their love. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up and a note-taking device. I might say a lot of words. Um, Open up your Bible if you want to stand. We're going to read this. I'll read today. It's a long verse. We don't have to read it all together. But this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. God, we ask that you would use this word this scripture that you have preserved for us to be for us food this morning, to to taste and see that you are good, that you are present, and that you long for us to be present to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay. I've titled this uh, message just two words, longing fulfilled. Longing fulfilled. And my dearest hope is that by the time we're finished, you'll understand what the heck I'm talking about with that title. So even as we're going through, and I'm going to do it verse by verse um, this morning, a little different than I normally do. And I want just sort of fixed, almost like the screen through which you are looking at the scripture this day. Longing fulfilled. So verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. I mean, this is the people of God just remembering their best king. Like, just remembering the dude, you know? The, the one that they, they always look to. The one that went through a lot of persecution and a lot of faithfulness and a few mighty failures on the way to fulfilling his role in Israel's history. So, as they're going to worship, they're remembering. They're just speaking out. Lord, remember your servant David. He... He went through a a, a hard time. Remember what he did. Verse 2, he swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. 
I'll allow, allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. As a sort of comical excursus here for a minute, my son Johnny went was real involved with the International House of Prayer in Kansas City when he was in high school and early college. He went off to a conference called One Thing, and it was all about night and day prayer. And uh, when he came back, he said to me and Jane, do you mind if I scribble a few things on my wall in my room? And we're like, no, that's fine. So the next day, we look into Johnny's room, and his entire wall is filled with Scripture. The... the, the um, the Sermon on the Mount is all around the top. It's still there. We haven't painted. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that part. Um, but right above where he sleeps, where his head would be, was this verse. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Johnny was a firebrand. <laughs> I don't know how he ever slept, you know, when he's trying to obey that, but um, that's completely not the topic here. Um, this oath that allegedly David made to the Lord is not found anywhere in the Scripture. Yes, we can't find that anywhere in the Scripture where it's clear that he made this oath. But the people of God are remembering that this was the heart of David. The psalmist is speaking about David's heart and his passion for the presence of God. The heart to worship, the heart to obey, and um, the, the heart that the, the primacy of God's love and presence and power would be right front and center for the people of Israel. David realized he had a palace that he could live in, but the Lord had no place to live. And specifically, the Ark of the Covenant, which I'll talk about in a bit, had no place to, to dwell. This symbol of God's presence was living in a tent while this person called by God was living in a palace. And David said that can't be because his concern for the glory of God and the blessing of the presence of this covenant God who promised to dwell among his people. And David wanted to do anything he could to make that happen, to make that reality that God would dwell among his people and the people would encounter God on a regular basis. To verse 6. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Ja'ar. I'm sure most of you have been there. Fields of Ja'ar, just north of 126th Street. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. Ephrathah is just another word for Bethlehem in Judah. So, uh, Ja'ar just refers to a village where the ark rested, the ark of the covenant, this symbol of God's presence, rested after it was returned to Israel and before David brought it to Jerusalem. So as they're going to the place of worship, they're remembering this oath that David swore, this desire to have the presence of God with them. And then the history of the ark being taken and you know by the Philistines, of being sent to another place. And then even after it returned, it was a, a scary thing because if you remember, Uzzah at one point stuck his hand out, touched the ark, and though he was trying to save it, the Lord killed him. That's how holy the presence of God is. The Ark of the Covenant, um, anyone seen uh, Indiana Jones? It's not any of it true. Well, maybe some of it. 
The Ark of the Covenant was a box about 45, minute, uh, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches deep, made of wood, acacia wood, and then covered with gold and framed with these two angel-like figures and then covered with this lid of gold was what was called the mercy seat where blood was offered and sins were forgiven. This gold place on a box where blood was offered and forgiveness was given, all looking ahead to the time when Jesus, out of God's mercy, would extend the grace of God by giving his blood so that forgiveness could be shed abroad. Moses uh, was the one instructed to make this symbol of God's presence it had the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, the stick that budded miraculously in Aaron's hand, and the golden jar of manna. So that manna they were not supposed to preserve was preserved in this place to remind the people of God how God had spoken, how God had provided, and how God had brought flourishing to their people. So long before uh, David, uh, David's time, the ark of the Lord was taken away and almost forgotten by the children of Israel. And David's passion was to build a temple, a place of dwelling for the dwelling of God. This symbol of God's presence, he wanted to put in a place where everyone would have access to it as God had wanted originally and commanded where, where um, the, the centrality of God's presence would be foremost in the mind of the Israelites. David was a man after God's own heart, and he wanted worship restored as God had commanded it. So eventually David finds, uh, finds the ark, and they bring it back to Jerusalem with great rejoicing. And remember, all of this history is being recounted as they're going on their journey to the temple, as they're going on their journey to worship, as they're going on their way to be with God and to encounter the presence of God. And so they say, arise, Lord. It's like they're, they're singing on the way. As they're on their way to worship God, they're saying to God, rise up and set yourself at rest right in the midst of us. You promised in Exodus to Moses that you would dwell among your people, and they're saying we long for it. We want that dwelling place. We want to be in your presence. They were hungry for God's presence. They also pray, interestingly enough, that the priests would do their job well. As a pastor, I kind of felt like, okay, that's appropriate. <laughs> they're, they're saying, God, we want your priests to be clothed with righteousness. In other words, when they lead us to your righteousness, let them be righteous. Because Old Testament it had an awful lot to do with whether the sacrifice was going to be good or not. That's why the priests did so much work before God to be holy, to bring people to a holy God. And they pray that the people would choose to rejoice in this focus on God's presence. So we've made it through nine verses, okay? We're on our way. Verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. The people have the nerve to tell God, don't go back on your promise. Isn't that sometimes what prayer is? 
I mean, not in a, in a bad way. Like, God, do you remember what you said? Could you, could you do that now? Don't forget what you said. I'm banking on that promise in my life. You said you would never leave me or, and, or never forsake me. It feels like you are right now. Just remember what you said. And so the people of God are saying, remember what you swore to David, that if they obeyed, there would be someone in his line on the throne forever and ever. Again, we get to look at this from a New Testament perspective, right? They're just looking for that, that, that king that one day would save them utterly and completely. We know that we're looking to Jesus, the perfect, sinless, Lamb of God, anointed king who would lead us to righteousness with God. When David finally brought the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, into the place in, in uh, Jerusalem, set it up in its place, this was an indication of a new era for God's people, what historians will call the Davidic era, the covenant with David, that there would be a ruler from the line of David on the throne forever and ever. Again, we're, we can now look back and realize that Jesus was in crystal clear focus right there in the midst of that. Though David, if he knew what he was doing, we don't know. And yet he was um, working, cooperating with God. We know that ultimately this anointed King Jesus, whose blood on the merciful seat of the cross would make forgiveness possible for everyone who came into contact with God's mercy and grace. We know that this is all a symbol of that, the presence of, the presence of God in their midst. The Jesus who came and died for us, the one that rose again, the one that conquered death, and the one that eventually would promise, I will not just be with you, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will be in you. What's, what was he saying? You're the new tabernacle. You're the new dwelling place of God. That's why, I, that's why they went through all that time to sing that song with all that history. That's why I took that time to remind us that this longing for the presence of God was fulfilled in Jesus, and we are now that resting place of God. He lives here. He lives in us. We're the bearers of God's presence. So, Speaking of us, let's move now from verses 1 to 9 and 10 or 1 to 12 that are longing to fulfillment. All of that was the people saying to God, remember what David did. Remember your promise. Remember all the hassle we went through with the ark. Remember, set yourself up. Be there for us, God. We want to interact with you. And then to verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. The Lord has chosen Zion as his forever resting place. It's the, it's the place of his desire. So we probably should know what Zion means. The word Zion is used about 150 times in the Bible. As the Bible progresses, Zion expands to take on not just a physical meaning, a place, but a spiritual meaning, a people. The mountain where Abraham brought Isaac, his son of promise, to 
to sacrifice him because God commanded him to is Mount Zion. Zion is a place where Abraham said to his son, you know, we're going to go do a sacrifice. And the son says, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> you know, like, mm, scared here. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. That's Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place where Jacob had his dream of interacting with heaven, where the angels were ascending and descending. Remember? You remember what Jacob says on this mountain after he has this dream? He says, the Lord, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. He's there on Mount Zion, recognizing that God was present and he was clueless. But from his dream, he realized it. Zion was originally a hill fortress in Jerusalem. Then David conquers it. He builds a palace. And so Zion slash Jerusalem, they're the same now at this point in the Old Testament, becomes the seat of power and rule for Israel. So Zion, a place where so many of the forefathers had encountered God, becomes a place from which the rule of God for the people of God is established. And Zion becomes this place where they would be marked and led from. When Solomon, David's son, finally builds the temple in Jerusalem, the meaning of Zion expands to take in the temple area. So now we're not just talking about a mountain or a place of rule, but a place of rule and a place of worship. So in the Old Testament, Zion can be used in all those ways that you see it as the city of Jerusalem, that particular um, physical place, the nation of Israel as a whole, or figuratively to refer to Israel as the people of God. This is all important because we just read the Lord has chosen Zion. Not just a mountain, not just a place of government, not just a people, but the people of God. And guess what? It's us. It's us. So Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews gives this, this um, he's talking about being in the presence of God and what it means that we have this access to God through the blood of Jesus. And he says, you have come to what? Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the people of God, the, the angels of God, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, the people of God throughout the ages. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He goes on to say, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All of this, New Testament, as we look at it, we realize that we, as the gathering people of God, are the place where God dwells. When we walk, when we walk not just into church, but when we walk with God, we walk with that mediator, Jesus. We walk with that judge, God. We walk with saints who have gone before. We walk with the heavenly angels. You, you realize we are not in a universe that just is all that we can see. We are in an expanded reality where God is present in ways, shapes, and forms that we can't imagine. 
And all the writers in the Bible can just use all these images to say, it's like this kind of sort of, but much more amazing. So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with David that transformed Mount Zion, a place into an eternal city filled with God's people. The city that's being built in and through us every day. And so what we're reading here and learning or remembering this morning is that God has chosen to dwell forever in Zion, his people. We're the bearers of God's presence. Now, we're going to find out what will God do for those in whom he lives? What's the fulfillment that's promised to you because you are a part of that heavenly city as someone who's come to Jesus? Verse 15. I will bless her, that is Zion, that is us, that is you. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. And her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. With God in us, these are the promises that we live in. We're promised God's faithfulness. He won't lie to us. He'll keep his promises to us. We're promised God's presence. He will never abandon us. We don't have to fear being alone because as Zion, as the people of God, as the place of God's dwelling, we are never alone. There's an author that I, I really like, and he says, God is unable to be absent. He doesn't know how to do it. He can't not be because he is the I am. That was pretty good there. God doesn't know how to be absent. If we have a sense of God's absence, guess what? It's us that's gone out for a walk. So, a promise for us, his people, his compassionate care. He'll provide for what we need. Now, as he talks about the poor, I just want to point out, we see this from a New Testament perspective. Clearly in the Gospels, the provision for the poor often comes through the people of God. Yes, we are the poor, but we also give to the poor. We receive from the king and we give from the king's hands. So we need not fear lack. God himself will provide the clothing of salvation to those who serve him. God will clothe the priests with salvation. In case you didn't know it, you've gotten an upgrade. You are a priest. We, as the people of God, are a kingdom of priests that serve God. You are a priest. It's not just me up here as pastor guy. It's you out there as priest person. Because you have been made right before God through Jesus, you carry the presence of God. You mediate God's presence in the world. What does a priest do? A priest talks to God on behalf of men and women and talks to men and women on behalf of God. That's not just my job. That's your privilege. We are the priests of God. And you know what he's clothed us with? Salvation. Righteousness. Made right. In fact, the New Testament, Paul's bold. He says, because of what Jesus has done, 
you are now the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm just speaking from the Bible. I know it sounds wacky, but you are not just clothed in righteousness. According to the scriptures, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. I don't know how that works. I don't know how when we feel so unrighteous, that can be true about us. But God speaks these words to us so we will stand up in the reality that's already true about us. We live out our truest righteous selves. And so, end of that verse 16, we who are in him have every right to forever sing for joy. That's just like a throw in there, isn't it? And may his people ever sing for joy. I think a couple of weeks ago, I talked about September being a not particularly joyful time for me. And I, I read through this and I just remembered all over again, oh, I have plenty of reason to forever sing for joy. When I see who I am, what God has done for me, what the promises are for me as a part of him and for us as the people of God. Verse 17 speaks of a horn growing for David and a lamp. And I wrote in my notes, what the heck is he talking about? The horn symbolizes growing strength and the lamp symbolizes light or revelation or a witness. So what's the good news for us here? this promise of David's growing horn and this lamp and this light and all this stuff, the good news is this. We need not fear that we are inadequate as ministers of the gospel in any way because for the people following this Davidic king, Jesus, our strength increases, our revelation increases, our light increases, and our witness increases. I mean, this is moving towards the world coming to Christ. This is moving to a culmination where Jesus gets all praise and all glory. Though we walk in humility, our witness does not diminish because this is God's promise, not our work. Praise God that in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness. In Christ. That's the promise of 2 Peter. And finally, to the last verse, verse 18 I will clothe his enemies with shame. We're back to David. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. The enemies of Christ will be clothed with shame by God himself. Now, this might be my particular angle on this, but here's what that says to me. It's not my job to clothe the enemies of Christ in shame. What that says to me is that the only thing, the only reason I really need to pay attention to my enemies or the enemies of Christ is according to Jesus to think about how I can pray for them and love them. Because God's got this part. God's going to clothe the enemies in shame. We are not shame clothers. We are grace clothers. We go out with grace but the glorious crown it says, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown, the glorious crown, the perfect beauty of Jesus' righteous reign and his sovereign authority remains forever. So it's like right at the end of this, you know, we're getting this picture. Everything's great for us. We got all the promises, yo. And just by the way, the enemies, the bad guy gets killed. Yes. Don't you love that in the movies when the bad guy finally goes down in shame? <laughs> 
Well, God does that part. And then just so we will stay focused, looking in the right direction, the psalm ends with this. But the radiant crown of his beauty and his glory, that remains forever. Remember, the authority of Jesus never ends. The kingship of Jesus has no term limit. He rules and reigns in us. And there will be a day when he rules and reigns through us, when that heavenly Jerusalem is complete. So longing, remember David and all he suffered and all he did to restore the holy presence of God and and to bring worship to be the central place in the life of the people. Longing, fulfilled, for the Lord has chosen Zion to dwell with her and to bless her with salvation and abundance. This is now where God dwells in us and how we enjoy the benefits and the provision of God's presence. Psalm 132 is a picture, a depiction of life in God's presence. And we're Zion in which he dwells and to whom he promises his loving action. And this will never change. This is God's eternal desire and design. You can't sin or despair or forget your way out of being the people of God. It's God's decree about us. So a couple of questions. What's your history with God's presence? What is it that you have longed for for years? What promises has God made to you? What promises has God fulfilled in your life? What do you long for still? What does it mean that you are now the dwelling place of the covenant-keeping God? What does it mean that you are now the dwelling place of the covenant-keeping God? How will tomorrow in your life with God be different than today? Because you know We know a little bit better who and whose we are. Let's stand. If I could ask the ministry team to come forward, that would be amazing. I just remind you that within you is God's dwelling place, a place of refuge and a place of safety, a place where God is fully present all the time, no matter your circumstances or perception of his presence. I remind you that God's dwelling place in you is a sanctuary in which you can freely give your love to God in worship, where you can surrender your agenda, and where you can find your holy center again in God's presence, his peaceful and loving presence. And that place within you, that dwelling place of God, is also a place of perspective. You know, in some way, we still hold the Mount Zion in here, from which we could see all things. It's a place of perspective. And so maybe some of us here this morning feel like, God, I need your perspective. You don't have to go somewhere else to get God's perspective. He's here. He's never anxious. He's never fearful. And he's always lovingly present. Lord, we thank you for this passage. 
God, I thank you for the reality that it expresses to us. I ask now in the name of Jesus that you would remind each of us what we need to remember. You would speak what we need to hear. And you would act in a way that we need to receive. We open ourselves to you, God, covenant-keeping God. And we ask that we might see your abundant provision. That we might walk in and experience your righteousness. That we, with the people of God of all time, might be able to walk in joy and confidence. If you'd like someone to pray for you this morning, any of the topics related to this message or anything else that's going on in your life where you need to be reminded that God is present, fully present, loving you, acting on your behalf, I just invite you to come forward and ask any of the prayer team to pray for you. Or if you came with someone, you can ask them to pray for you. Earlier, someone came to me during worship and said, I just keep getting this picture of of freedom happening, of, you know, like butterflies out of chrysalis and, and chicks out of eggs and just there's something about breakthrough this morning. So if you're in a place where breakthrough is the word that describes your longing and your need, then come forward and let us pray for you. Anytime you're ready, you're welcome to come. I'm okay. It's just the Holy Spirit. My name is Jane, and um, I felt the Lord had a word for somebody today. Um, It's not a mistake that you're here today. Um, And so I feel like um, the Lord wants wants to let you know that he remembers the promises he's made to you. This was before Randy even talked about that. Um, and that I just want to encourage you to come up for prayer if that's you, because he, the Lord wants, he wants you to, 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 um, come back to him if you've been struggling with where you are with him. Um, so I just encourage you to come up for prayer if that's you. Thanks, Jane.